As we're diving into God's word this morning, I'd encourage you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. Um, Noah last week did a tremendous job of covering the, the uh, incredible prayer that Jesus prays in John 18, reminding us of our oneness with God and our oneness that we're supposed to show with each other. I hope that God has encouraged you with that this week as you've been walking through, and uh, I think we'll have to have Noah back sometime because he did a great job. But as we're here in John chapter 18, we're getting ready to transition into a different section here in John that's going to take us through for a few more weeks. The, as we mentioned, up through chapter 13 looked at like the first almost three years of Jesus's ministry. Then we spent like four chapters looking at the last night of Jesus's ministry. And now we're finishing that up and we're getting ready to go into the events that were the crucifixion and the resurrection. So everything from here is going to get chaotic. How many of you like to go to the fair, okay? I remember back when I was a kid and the fair used to come every year to the, uh, to the New River Valley Mall and they'd sit up out in the parking lot, you know, and you'd ride uh, the, the Gravitron. I remember how cool that one was. There was another ride there. How many of you guys remember this particular ride? The Scrambler, right? They still have one at Dollywood in case you haven't. Um, if you're not familiar with what this thing is, you can see you got like four cars on three arms and it just spins around and you always wanted to make sure if you were scrawny like I was in high school, you needed to pick which side you were because if you were sitting somebody who was bigger than you are, they were going to cream you by the time it was over because they were just going to slam into you over and over and over again. And if you were like my friends, they loved doing that, you know, because um, you could if you remember, you pull the bar and you kind of pull into the middle and then let go and slam into somebody. Yeah, it's low fun. You know, as a kid, I could do that. I think I would throw up if I tried it now. I'm just, uh, I'm getting to that point. I'm old enough now that I, once I get off of a, a roller coaster, I have to take a second. I, I'm sorry. I'm just, I've hit that point. I'm getting that old. I'm 39 and I'm already to that point. It's scary. But if, if you were a kid, you remember, it just feels like the thing is hurtling along and everything's spinning. It looks like you're going to slam into this car and at just the last second, everything spins past. And then it comes out and it looks like you're going to fling out past the fence. But now it just whips back around and it just is this kind of jarring, disorienting feeling, right? You remember that? Now, the fear is the fun of it. That's what you're supposed to do. But as an adult, looking at it kind of from the top, you realize that it's actually not chaotic at all. It's just a simple matter of physics as things are rotating around two different posts and the way that it goes. It's actually all under control. Now, they give you that feeling and that sensation that life is going to throw you out, but at the same time, it's not. Here's my question for you. Do you ever feel like life is just one giant scrambler ride? I mean, some of you may be in a great place today, and I hope that that's the case, and I hope that God gets us all to that place eventually. But there are some days when it just feels like you're spinning in circles, you're slamming into stuff, and you were inches away from death and disaster. You know what I mean? Have you guys been in that season before? Now, I will say God is not some wicked carny whose job is just to try to make you as uncomfortable as possible to give you a thrill. But, you know, our lives do feel like the scrambler sometimes. But maybe if we could see it from the top down, maybe we'd see. Maybe you would see that there's actually order to this. It's actually under control. And what to us feels so crazy, so frenetic, so frantic, so unbelievable is actually in the middle of something that really makes sense when you see it, if you could see it from that perspective. 
Now, as we're picking up here in John 18, we're about to hit Jesus going through the scramble. The next several hours of Jesus' life are going to involve him being arrested, beaten, dragged from place to place, tried in these miscarriages of justice over and over again, eventually to the point where he's hung on a cross to hang there naked and bleeding and die. It's going to feel like everything has gone crazy. Everything's gone haywire. But what I want you to see that in the garden that night when Jesus was arrested, everything was under his control. Now, my hope from this is twofold. As we're thinking about this, my hope is that first off, you're going to see how incredible God really is. That's one of my goals every time we get together is that you would leave here thinking what a great God we serve. And if you don't yet serve him, my hope and my prayer is that as you hear about how amazing he is and to what great lengths he went to rescue you, my hope and my prayer is that today you'll come to know him as your God. You'll trust him and you'll serve him and honor him. Because that's the second really hope that I have for you. Not just that you'll get to know him better and see how incredible he is, but that as you do, you'll be encouraged to remember to live a life of worship through submission to him. Okay? What we're going to find is just a handful of verses this morning. We're going through the first 12 verses here in John 18, and we're watching Jesus get arrested. As we watch Jesus get arrested, here's the one thing I want you to walk away from here this morning remembering. No matter what situation you're in, no matter what you're facing, I want you to leave here settled on the fact that God is in control. Okay? Now, if you've grown up in church, you're like, hey, I got that. No. I want this to be a core anchoring place for you so that when the scrambler starts running, when things seem out of control, you can remember that at the helm of all of this is a God who is in control. Now, why out of this passage? Because as we watch Jesus get arrested, he's not a victim of circumstance. In fact, what we'll see this morning is that he's actually controlling the entire thing the entire way through. All right? Now, to get that a little bit more clear, start with me here in verses 1 through 3. After Jesus had said these things, what are these things? Well, everything we've gone through over the last several weeks from from, uh, chapter 13 on. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees And they came out there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus has spent this night. He's washed his disciples' feet. He's taught them. He's prayed for them. And now the moment has come. Just like Noah had said, remember back at the beginning of John, he had said, my hour is not yet come. And then last week as we saw him praying in John 17, he said, my hour has come. This is it. This is the moment that all of history has been looking toward. And as we find Jesus in the garden, I want to make three observations about the fact that he was in control. The first thing that I want you to see as we look at this is, number one, Jesus is fully aware. Jesus is fully aware, okay? Read verse 4 with me. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it you're seeking? Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him. Do you get that? He knew all of it. He knew the trials. 
He knew the beatings. He knew the cross. He knew the tomb. And yes, he knew the resurrection. But there was a lot of pain between here and there. Now, this harkens us back, by the way. John introduced us to that idea back in John 13, verses 1 through 3. He said, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Then in verse 3, he knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. So what we see is that through all of these events that seem so hectic, so frantic, so out of control, Jesus was fully aware before any of them happened. Now, John's showing that Jesus knew everything about it. We're going to draw some principles, but don't rush too quickly through that. As we're looking at this, think about what we're talking about here. These moments form the dividing line in history, okay? You have to understand, as we're thinking about God being in control of our lives today, that's a wonderful truth. But keep in mind the context of what we're seeing here. Jesus' death on the cross is everything that God had been promising since we first messed up and fell in the garden. This is what everything was looking forward to. And for us now, it's what we look back at as the only source of our relationship with God through that last breath that he exhaled has now made me alive, right? Through his death and his resurrection, I now have life in Christ because of what he's done. This moment is the dividing line of human history. This is God's plan of redemption that we first hear about in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. And the moment we all look back on, all of history has been building to this moment. And Jesus went into it fully aware of what it would cost. And he went willingly. He went willingly. How many of you have ever put off a doctor's appointment because you knew it would be uncomfortable? Okay. Yet here the God of the universe knows he's about to be beaten, spat on, hung on a cross to die. And he goes willingly. Although this was a unique moment in history, Here's what's neat. God's awareness of what's going on wasn't just happening then. Our God is always aware. Always. You guys remember a couple weeks ago when we set our clocks, let's see, forward, I guess, right? You remember walking around like a zombie for a week trying to get adjusted to it? So much so that our divided Congress actually looks like they're going to finally be able to pass at least one bill this year, and that is that we're not going to do this anymore, (laughs) right? Think about how groggy you get when you miss a good night's sleep. You may have even actually been in your bed for like that long, but like if you woke up four or five times, you just don't feel good when you wake up. You realize God never has that experience? God never does. If you, that three o'clock slump where you, you know, you've been at work all day and you realize that you've been staring at the same screen for like 10 minutes and you have no idea what it says, <laughs> you know, or you, I know some of our students are getting towards the end of their semester and that they've been studying hard and you've read that same paragraph like 16 times and you have no idea what any of it means. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? God doesn't. I mean, he does know, but he doesn't know it experientially. He's never had that moment. You see, the psalm writer said, indeed, the protector of Israel, talking about God, does not slumber nor sleep. God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get drowsy. I I drove to Richmond and back this week, and 
I was driving across Afton Mountain on Wednesday when all of the storms were moving through, and the fog was so thick, you couldn't hardly see in front of you. And that wears me out. I, I don't like driving long distances. I don't do well with that. And so I can guarantee you, I drove it straight. So I can, uh, three hours to Richmond is not that long, but I can guarantee you I wasn't paying as good attention by the time I got to Richmond as I was when I left. Y'all been there? God hasn't. God is fully aware of everything happening in every corner of the globe at every moment in history. Did you realize that? Not only does he know that everything that's going on, he also knows everything that ever will happen. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Think about what that means. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God knew exactly where you would be born. God knew exactly who and what day you would get married if you'd been married. God knew how many kids you were going to have. God knew where you were going to work. God knew what you're going to get on your finals this semester. God knew all of that before even one of your days came out. That means God knew that at 11.42 a.m. on March the 27th, 2022, you would be sitting at 2895 Roanoke Street in Christiansburg, Virginia. Isn't that incredible? And God knows that about all 8 billion people who are on the planet right now. Jesus was fully aware as he was going to the cross. He knew exactly what was going on, and he knows everything that's going on right now. So that means he knows exactly what's going on in the world today. Everything. The diagnosis you're still waiting on, God knows. The outcome of this relationship, God already knows. How this is all going to play out in Ukraine, God already knows. What groceries are going to cost in September, God already knows. He is fully aware. Now, there's comfort in that. There is. Because that means that there's somebody out there, and the best somebody out there, who's in charge, who's got a plan who sees and knows exactly what's going on. Now, I want to lean into something for a second. For some of you, it's really hard to think that that's comforting. Because you say, well, if God knows this before I was ever born, then that means God knew that this person would hurt me this way. God knew that this bad thing would happen. God knew that this tumor would crop up. God knew that this, why didn't he stop it? Can I just go ahead and tell you as a pastor who's been here for almost 11 years, guy who's been walking with Jesus for almost 30, I don't know. I don't. I cannot tell you that I know exactly why God allowed anything to happen. I can't. I don't know why he doesn't stop certain things. I don't know why he allows certain things. I don't. But here's what I do know. 
He is the God who sees. Some of you may not be familiar with with the first time that phrase gets used in Scripture. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, you find this couple, Abram and Sarai, right? Or Abraham and Sarai. God had promised that he was going to make a great nation out of them by a child that Abraham would father. They were old. It was too late for her to have kids. So Sarah comes up with a plan. There was an enslaved woman in their household, an Egyptian by the name of Hagar. She was one of Sarah's servants, and so she said, I tell you what, why don't you sleep with my husband and have a child by him? So she goes, and she does what she's told. She's an enslaved person who doesn't have a choice. And she gets pregnant. Sarah gets mad about it because now here her servant's pregnant and she's never been able to get pregnant and there's this incredibly difficult situation. But in Genesis 16, she makes life so unbearable for Hagar that Hagar runs away with it while she's pregnant. She said, I, just, I have to get away because I'm being so badly mistreated. God appeared to, to Hagar by a spring and made her a promise. God saw where she went. God saw where she ended up. And as he did, he made her this promise that that said that if, if she would go back to face Sarah and bear her child, that he would take care of her and her son. In fact, even though there's lots of issues with Ishmael's family, that child would grow up to have his own great nation. What did Hagar say when she saw that? When God was actually telling her to go back to where she'd been mistreated, to go back and face this again. Genesis chapter 16, she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roi, for she said, in this place. Have I actually seen the one who sees me? That's why the well is called Ber Lahai Roi. It's between Kadesh and Bered. He is the God who sees. Now, I don't know why he didn't stop that thing from happening. I don't know why he's not taking this thing away. I don't know. But I do know that he's the God who sees. He's the God who met Hagar by the spring. The God who knows. Jesus is getting ready to go through incredibly difficult circumstances, but he's fully aware of what's going on. You may be facing incredibly difficult circumstances, getting ready to go into it. Who knows? As you do, keep in mind that Jesus is still fully aware of what's going on. By the way, it said that the angel of the Lord is the one that appeared to her at the spring. Most scholars believe that that, that actually is Jesus taking on a, a pre-incarnate form. So Jesus is the one who showed up to Hagar there at the spring. The same God who's fully aware is the God who sees you today. The God who knows. Now, not only is he the God who knows, it's one thing to see something. He's also, as we've said, number two, he is fully in control. You know, I I can see things happen, but if I have no ability to do anything about it, it doesn't do you any good, right? Right? I can know stuff, but if I can't act on it, then it doesn't help. So as we look at this, what I want you to see is that Jesus, even though he's about to be arrested and tried and all of these things, throughout this whole process, he is fully in control of what's taking place. 
We see that displayed in a couple of different ways in this chapter. First, think back to verse 2, okay? Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus, Jesus often met there with his disciples. How does that show us that Jesus is in control? Okay, go back to the upper room. We know that Jesus sent Judas out knowing that Judas was going to betray him. So what does Jesus do? Go to the same place that he always does where Judas knew he could find him. What could Jesus have done differently here? I don't know. Go anywhere else, right? He could have gone literally anywhere else. But instead, fully aware of what was going on, he went to the exact spot where Judas would come looking for him. He didn't try to hide. He didn't try to run away. He went exactly where he should have been. That's exemplifying that he's in control. Because if, if I knew that an angry mob was going to arrest and try to kill me today, if I went to, let's see, I'm trying to think of somewhere I go regularly, um, the gym, okay? If I knew that if I go to the gym today, there's an angry mob waiting to arrest me, what am I going to do? Skip the gym today. Go anywhere else, Right? But Jesus goes exactly where he's supposed to because he's in control of this entire process. Jesus had already told his disciples he would lose his life, but remember, that was by his control. We saw this back in chapter 10 where he said, this is why the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. He says, nobody is taking my life from me. I'm willingly laying it down. Again, before we pull principles out of this, remember that he's willingly laying down his life for you. Because you've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You've done what you wanted to do instead of what God called you to do. And that results in spiritual death for all of us. And it should result in physical death for all of us. But Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to take that death on the cross, on himself, and offer you his life, fully in control, laying down his life in exchange for yours and mine. He's fully in control. You get a second glimpse into the way we know he's in control back in verses 4 through 6. This is one of my favorite parts of this whole passage, all right? It's kind of crazy. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it that you're seeking? I am Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed them, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Well, that's weird. Did they just like get tripped up? They were too close to columns, so when they went backwards, they just kind of tripped over their own two feet. What happened here? See, it's interesting because... In our English translations, to make it make sense, we add the word he there. I am he. But it appears in this moment, if you look at the Greek, it simply says, I am. Now, some of you know that, why that's significant. In case you don't, that's the name that God gave himself. See, everything we call God is a title. Even God itself, Jesus the God who sees. These are all titles of who God is. But if you go back to the book of Exodus, 
God was calling Moses to go back to the people of Israel. And he said, who do I say sent? By the way, for us, it's, it's kind of hard to think about this sometimes because we're, we're not used to thinking about gods with names. But what we really are, if you think about it, I mean, you've heard of Apollos and Zeus and uh, you know, Osiris, or you've heard of all of these different pantheons of gods. Every god had a name. So Baal or Asherah were some of the other gods you see that the Canaanites worshiped. So when Moses says, hey, who do I say is, is the, the God who sent me? What, what's your name? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, when you're looking in an English translation and you see the, the capital L with the small caps O-R-D next to it, that's this name. Uh, Jewish folks believe that when God said that, that you're not to take the name of the Lord in vain, they won't say this name out loud with the exception of very few uh, and specific circumstances. Like if you're about to die, you're allowed to call out in, in behalf of the name. There's some ceremonies that they use the name on, like the, the Day of Atonement and things like that. But they won't pronounce the name. Most of the time, by the way, the best translation we know of it would be Yahweh. That, but that may not even be totally accurate. So here's what Jesus did. In a moment, With a word, he knocks over Roman soldiers with the power of his voice. He simply says, I am. And they fall. Think about that for a moment. Think about the voice of the God who said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be land. And there was land. Let there be creatures, and there were creatures. And in this moment, he says, I am. And it knocks trained Roman soldiers, hard, calloused men on their tails, simply by speaking. Tell me for a second that Jesus was not in control here. Tell me that he didn't have the ability to flex and do whatever he wanted to. The I am who I am, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the God of Israel just declared his name and knocked people over simply by speaking. St. Augustine or Augustine, a bishop who lived back in the 300s or 400s AD, said this when he was preaching on the passage. Um, There's some old school language and the quote is a little bit long, so I apologize for the length of it, but it was too good not to share. Speaking of Jesus, he said, his own single voice uttering the words, I am he, without any weapon, smote, repelled, prostrated that great crowd with all the ferocity of their hatred and terror of their arms. For God lay hid in that human flesh. An eternal day was so obscured in those human limbs that with lanterns and torches, he was sought for to be slain by the darkness. I am, he says, and he cast the wicked to the ground. What will he do when he comes as judge? Who did this when giving himself up to be judged? What will his power be when he comes to reign? Who had this power when he came to die? I am. And they fall. Do you think that he's less in control now? If he was in control of the most unjust moment in history where he could simply speak and knock people flat. Do you think he's at less in control now? He's absolutely aware. 
By the way, it's fascinating because after he says it the first time and makes his point, he restrains his glory and says it again, but they don't fall over this time. Verse 7, then he asked them again, who is it you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This will still fulfill the words he had said, I've not lost one of those you've given me. Did you catch that? When you're getting arrested, you don't get to call the shots, right? You don't get to tell the police what you're doing. You've lost that right and that privilege at this point, right? However, what does Jesus do? You're here for me. Leave them alone. He's still in control, even as he's allowing himself to be arrested. He's fully in control every step of the way. Can I remind you that that same God is still fully in control? He said to Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 10, I declare the end from the beginning, from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Have you ever sat with somebody who has, has the amazing ability to ruin a movie for you? Because they'll sit there and be like, oh, that's the killer. How did you? No, no, I don't know. And it turns out they're right. Oh, yeah, that dude's not going to make it to the end of the movie. God is infinitely beyond that. He said, I declare a thing before it begins. You wouldn't want to go up against him in a bracket challenge because God knows exactly what the upsets are going to be. He declares the end of a thing from the beginning. He is fully in control, even in the garden where he's getting arrested. Okay? As we go through the chaotic events of the next few chapters of our lives, keep in mind that God is working his plan through every step, and that's the same truth that carries us through the chaotic chapters of our lives. He's working his plan in every single step. That leads to a final key for us, and that is not only is Jesus fully aware and fully in control, but Jesus is also fully submissive. Fully submissive. Pick up in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and stuck the, right, or the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, Peter's not fully aware of God's plan, so he tries to fix the problem by fighting back. That's Peter's first reaction. Uh, his fight-or-flight reaction is fight every single time. By the way, for those who've never thought about it, he wasn't aiming for his ear, okay? It would take an expert swordsman to get somebody's ear, or it would take a really bad swordsman to miss the rest of his head and just get his ear. Much more likely the case that this fisherman just missed. He was trying to cut his head off, and instead he cut his ear, Okay? which worked out well for Malchus. If he'd landed that one, it would have been a different story. The other gospel writers tell us, by the way, uh, I think it's Luke who specifically mentions it, that Jesus actually touched him and healed his ear. Like, do you see how ridiculous this is? Like, okay, imagine, imagine Russian soldiers storming Kiev and grabbing the Ukrainian president One of them has some kind of knife on him. He cuts off one of the guy's ears as they're trying to take the president away. And instead, the president stops and says, hey, we're not doing that. Puts the dude's ear back together. Jesus is fully in control every step of this. By the way, it's interesting that Malchus's name is used here. 
You know why John most likely did that? We don't know for sure. But it's likely that Malchus got saved. Remember, John's writing years after the crucifixion. It's likely that the reason he used Malchus's name is to remind everybody because they'd heard about Malchus. They'd heard about this high priest servant who, who had gotten saved and was following Jesus. And, and they, they knew this guy. They're like, oh yeah, that was Malchus. By the way, it's Malchus that got his ear chopped off. By the way, wouldn't that have been a fun discussion between him and Peter? Hey, remember the time he tried to cut off my head? Yeah, my bad, sorry. But in the middle of all that, in the middle of all the chaos of this, Jesus has put it away. Am I not going to drink the cup that the Father's given me? What was that cup? That cup was the cup that contained the wrath of God for my sins and yours. All of Jesus' life and ministry on earth had been moving towards this moment. And I said, am I not to reach out and drink this cup? The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus had, at three different times, in a section that John doesn't record here, Jesus had gone off and prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But every time the answer was, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He was fully submissive to the Father's will. That's challenging, isn't it? He was fully aware of what it would cost. He was fully in control, yet he was fully submissive to the Father's plan. We hate that word, don't we? Submission is just not a common word that we like to talk about because nobody wants to submit to somebody else. We're all proud. We're all selfish. We're all insecure. We all show it in different ways. But the reality is submission is very difficult. But Jesus was fully submissive to the Father. This is submission in its highest form. He is willingly entrusting himself to the Father's plan. Now, as we've said previously, this moment is absolutely unique in human history. Jesus is the only one who was destined to drink that cup for mankind. Jesus is the only one who could die on the cross for our sins. This moment is unique in human history. However, here's what we find. I don't know everything. I'm not fully in control of anything. In fact, the reality is, if you want to freak yourself out, spend some time this afternoon thinking about how little of your life you are actually in control of. If you want to to get a little bit of panic going, go for that. Because the reality is, you and I have absolutely no control over our lives. We just don't. You can't control the gas prices. You can't control the food prices. You can't even control your own blood pressure. You can't, you can't control genetic defects that you may not even know about. I'm sorry, by the way, for those of you who struggle with anxiety disorders. I'm not trying to make this worse. What I'm trying to do is help you to see you can't control, so stop trying to. Stop. Instead, emulate Jesus' submission to the Father. I can't copy Jesus' awareness. I can't copy Jesus' control. But what I can do is I can say, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, listen, this is not passivity. I'm not calling you to live a life of passivity, of, you know, c'est la vie, come what may, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus didn't do that. 
Jesus actively knocked them over to show his power. Jesus actively fought for his disciples. Jesus actively stands up to the high priest and to Pilate and others throughout this process as Jesus actively allows himself to go to the cross. So yes, passive submission is not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about humble activity. See, if you have a cancer diagnosis, I'm not one who's going to tell you to sit there and say, well, you know, God's in control, so whatever happens, happens. No, take the treatments, pray for healing, seek to do whatever you need to do, but all of that with the understanding that nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see the difference? Don't in arrogance claw for something that's not what God's called you to do, but fight to stay alive if that's what God's calling you to do. Fight for your marriage. Fight for your kids. Stand up and do things. All of this, though, with the understanding, not my will, but yours be done. By the way, sometimes that is going to require stepping back. Some of you, maybe the reason you're exhausted today is because you've been trying to control situations that are above your pay grade. They're not yours to control. And so you need to look at your Savior standing in the garden, getting ready to go to the cross for your sins and see that he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. So for you, the prayer for you today needs to be, God, not my will, but yours be done. And whatever that looks like, that may mean difficult things like hard conversations in a relationship. It may mean facing a long road of treatments, making difficult choices, standing up for what's right, not giving up. It means striving, though, with humility. God, I want you to do what you want. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Not my will, but yours be done. So as we go through the rest of what's called the passion narrative, as we go through the the trials, as we go through Peter's denial, as we go through the beatings, as we go through the cross, keep in mind, Jesus was in control the entire time. He was fully aware, he was fully in control, and he was fully submissive. And then when we go out from this place and we're tired and we're exhausted and we're confused, we have to remember, Jesus is fully aware. He's fully in control. And so I'm going to submit to his will. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a moment. Odds are that if this is something that you need to work on, there's probably an area that's come to mind as we've been talking this morning. I try to keep my illustrations and stuff kind of vague so that the Holy Spirit can apply them specifically when he needs to. So if you felt convicted about this in an area, that probably wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit. In just a few minutes, we're going to adjourn to go back and have lunch together as a church family. It's going to be fun. It's going to be good to get together with everybody for the first time in a long time. But my question for you is, what do you need to seal and settle right now before you go back? Is there a situation where you need to be reminded that God sees you and God knows? 
Is there a situation you've been trying to control and you need to surrender that and say, God, I don't know exactly what your will is, but I know you're in charge. So God, I want to submit to you just like Jesus did. Again, if you're not following Jesus, listen, this is the God who loved you so much he would die in your place. He let himself go through all of this because he loves you. What more could you do than surrender to him today? God, I want to follow you and I want to honor you. I want to stop doing things my way and start doing them yours, whatever that looks like, whatever that's going to cost. I want to submit myself to you. The Bible word for that, by the way, is surrendering to him as our Lord. The word Lord there is the idea of the one who's in charge, the one who owns me, the one who directs me. I'm his servant. So make that commitment this morning. Take just a moment and do business with God, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we come before you today, and we thank you that Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. We can hardly fathom such a great, merciful God who would do these things. Today, there are moments in our days and our weeks that feel like we're riding a scrambler and we just wish it would stop. So today, we stop and say, we know you're in charge. We want to submit to you with an active submission that's willing to stand and make difficult decisions and have tough conversations But in all of this, we simply want to confess together as a church. It's not about what we want out of life or what our plans are. Not our will, but yours be done. For some, that prayer is costly and painful today. Would you remind them of the costliness of the way that Jesus surrendered to you? And as they share in his sufferings for your namesake, would you give them grace? Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for your word. Bear fruit in our lives through it this week. In Jesus' name.